0: Hey, welcome to the Learning Little Lessons Podcast, where the goal here is to fill you up on Jesus so that you can pour out and give to the people around you. Today, I have something special. I have the second of four recordings from our Sister Share event in March. This recording is from Storytime with Bia. We, we like to call it Storytime with Bia. It's um, Bia... Um, interviewing someone to tell, and they tell their story. So the story is Sue Ellen Maybaugh, and she is just phenomenal. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Um, Grab your Kleenexes because you might just need it. Enjoy. All right. So I'm Bia. and this is Sue Ellen, and she's going to tell us what circumstance found her Um, I'm going to start over. Tell us what circumstance you found yourself in that created you to survive. Well,
1: so there were many times um, as a young mom, I felt like I was in survival mode for days or weeks, but they soon passed. They were just a season. My longest circumstances in um, survival mode started in 1995. I was married to Greg Gosser. We'd been married for 10 years. And um, he was a quiet man. He was funny, He had a great dry sense of humor. Um, And he was really strong and healthy. He was a very hard worker and a great dad. He had a hard time turning off his thoughts though, so he always had to be busy. He could not just sit down and relax. Um, so, to counter that, he worked a lot. He would go to work in the morning and he'd come home, um, find something to do outside, some projects. And he was always, always had to be busy, always had something to do. At that time, we had four children, um, ages nine, six, four, and one and a half. On December 27, 1995, he was diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. He was 38 years old. He'd been having leg cramps for about a year and twitches in his legs when he'd go to bed at night. We just thought maybe he was deficient in calcium or something, so we started dabbling in that for a little bit. And the summer went on, and towards the end of the summer, he says, when I'm walking up the stairs, my legs feel like rubber and we kind of didn't think too much about it and then in about october that year he started walking funny he's kind of he's walking he kind of dragged his leg a little bit and we thought maybe he had a pinched nerve or something so we decided to see a chiropractor um we went to the chiropractor and he said actually when you walk you're walking but your foot is dropping you're not you're not able to pull that back up that muscle isn't working so he sent us back to our general practitioner who did some strength tests on Greg. He kind of, you know, had them push against him and strengthening tests like that. And immediately he sent us to a neurologist or set us up for an appointment to a neurologist. Um, I was a dental hygienist at the time. And at that point, we thought we were uh, dealing with maybe MS. We were just getting worried. And I was a hygienist at the time. And my sister-in-law, Dawn Maybach, came in to have her teeth cleaned. And I was just telling her what we were dealing with. And as I was, she asked me for the symptoms. And as I was talking to her, she started to cry. And and big tears are rolling down her cheeks. And she says, those were the same symptoms that my dad had. And her dad had died of ALS. Um, and I knew him because I was he was from Connecticut. He was related to me. And he was this big, burly man. And by the time he died, about five years later, he was couldn't breathe, couldn't walk, was in a wheelchair. I got really a pit in my stomach. I thought, I hope we're not dealing with this. So my prayer then became, I knew MS has a longevity and I knew ALS did not. So my prayer became, maybe maybe I should pray that it is MS and not ALS. Um, I didn't mention this to Greg. I just bore it alone. We were going to Connecticut that weekend for Christmas. Um, or that for over Christmas. So we went to the neurologist and he did some tests on Greg. He did stuck needles in his arms and did uh, an electromagnetic test where um, when he contract and relaxed his hands it showed them some stuff. He did some other tests. And when he got done, he looked like he was going to cry. And I'm like, something's going on here. But he said, you go... To Connecticut, enjoy your Christmas, and when you come back, we'll set something up and go over the results. Oh my so we went to Connecticut, and which brings us to December 27th of 1995. We went back to the doctor, and he very blatantly said, um, told Greg that he has a myotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS for short also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. He explained that the nerve cells that talk to the motor or voluntary muscles were dying. When the nerve cells don't send the muscles a signal to move, they quit working or atrophy and shrink up to nothing. He told us medical science could not isolate a cause, neither was there a cure. The Prognosis was two to five years. And at the end, the only muscle that would be able to move would be his eyelids. So um, he said very blatantly "Too, go home and talk about breathing machines and um, feeding tubes. And we're like, what? Breathing machines and feeding tubes? I barely knew what they were. And he was telling us to go home and talk about that. We were stunned. We were in shock, two to five years. At this point, Greg was only having trouble dragging a leg. We we just couldn't imagine that in our head. Little did we know how soon he'd need him. Greg felt like he was given his death sentence, which in reality he was. When we got home, the kids took it like we thought they were. Laura buried her head in her Ann's arm and didn't want to hear it. And um, Leah and Todd jumped up and down screaming, is daddy going to die? Is daddy going to die? And Greg just calmed everybody down by saying, kids, I'm gonna die, you're gonna die, mom's gonna die, even Bethany's gonna die. We just don't know when. And that settled things down. We felt like we were just dealt a huge blow and we did not know which way to turn. That night we prayed, talked and cried. We were so afraid of the future and questioning our whole being. Greg was the person who was always busy and couldn't relax, and he was going to be a prisoner in his own body. Greg thought he was being punished for something, and I had to assure him that was not the case. God doesn't work like that. We both felt and agreed that if it was to lead one person to Christ, even our own kids in the future, then it was worth it. Although at times that struggle was almost unbearable, we held on to that position and it actually was strengthening for us because it helped us to go on and to um, be an example and accept our cross. Like Like Romans 8, 26 to 27, we needed to rely on the spirit to make intercession for us with groanings because we were so devastated. We didn't know what or how to pray. Should we pray for healing? Should we pray for longevity? Greg brought up King Hezekiah and how he was dying and he asked for more time from God. And God gave him 15 years. But those 15 years were not good for the next generation. And we knew we didn't want that to happen. We were so afraid that the prayers would cease after the initial diagnosis. But we certainly found ourselves to be wrong. We lived through the power of prayer. People from all over sent us cards, told us that they were praying for us, people we didn't even know. We were confident that God was by our side and we really felt the spirit working in in the people around us. We just tried to comprehend the amount of prayers that were going to the Father's heart. And and it was just the love and compassion was overwhelming. So we did some research and we found out that the best facilities, ALS facilities were right up here in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic. They had the best research doctor right there. Um, Our doctor, Dr. Mitsumoto, was very sympathetic and very compassionate. He told us that people have lived with ALS for 10 years and that kind of gave us hope that maybe Greg would be able to see the kids grow. He also told us, this isn't just your disease, it's the whole family's disease. Just keep a positive attitude. We'll treat your symptoms and keep you comfortable and just keep a positive attitude. So we determined that long-term plans weren't even, um, we, we weren't even consider long-term plans except to give our children hope. We really needed to live for today and take one day at a time. So that was in December. And in December, as January began, I could see changes happening already. Greg had been fitted with a brace for his foot that was dropping, and, but in January he couldn't even shovel snow anymore. He tried to shovel snow and he'd lose his balance. One Saturday in January, we decided to take the kids swimming at the Steiner Center in Wadsworth. And it was always good therapy, Greg loved to swim and it was relaxing for him, but this time it was different. In the pool, all four children were hanging on me and Greg was about 15 feet away. there seemed to be a separation happening already. And I felt like this was a taste of my future. Greg would be gone and I would have the whole responsibility of raising the four children myself. The helping hands began. In the morning we'd wake up and our driveway would be plowed. People came, would come and help us cut wood to burn. Meals were organized to come and offers to help with the children clean, whatever were pouring in. Greg's family was a huge emotional support and willing to do anything, watch the kids do laundry, yard work. His brother, John came every week to do whatever Greg could not do. And he continued that for months after Greg died. My family from Connecticut also made many trips out to help us. Since there was no treatment except to treat the symptoms, we decided to try a holistic approach to see if we could buy some time. We began by changing our diets and trying some other treatments that were shown to help other ALS patients. It took a lot of our time and effort. And even though this did not help with his disease, it gave us tremendous hope to keep going on. We had high hopes that something was gonna help and would give us more years together. So some instances, we had a burning wood stove And to feed the wood stove, Greg couldn't walk very, uh, couldn't do stairs very well anymore. So um, he'd crawl down the stairs, he'd walk over to the wood stove and then he'd try and lift these heavy logs. He'd lift them and he'd lose his balance and try and throw them in. And I couldn't hardly stand it. So I started sneaking down the basement and doing it for him. And he really got upset with me. He said, that is my job. And I just had to back off and pray and watch him. And I knew that he would eventually hand the job over to me and he did. He quietly handed the job over to me. Um, Acceptance, Greg would struggle, struggle, struggle. And then he would accept the circumstances and move on. No regrets, no turning back. And he was such a trooper. That's how it was the whole nine months that he lived. So by now he was walking with a cane And you'd often see him in church walking in there. And Laura was just the right size. She was nine years old at the time. So he'd have the cane in one hand and he'd have his other hand on Laura and they'd walk into church. So February turned into March. And each week I could see we were losing ground. Greg was a cabinet maker at Swiss Woodcraft. And the first time when he came home, he told me that he had fallen at work. I was just devastated. I'm like, what did you do? And he said nobody saw me, so I just got up and kept working. And that was Greg. He just he was a trooper. Um, at work, he he had um, he was since he was a cabinet maker. They have cart sets with woodcraft that you put wood on and push around the shop. Well, he just kind of adopted one of those carts he would use for a walker because he could not walk on his own anymore. And he did not have a walker and couldn't take it to work. So he'd use that and then he'd lean on it and do his fine work. Um, so he would park his cart right inside the door and then he'd drive his car to work, his truck to work. And he'd strategically park his truck next to another vehicle, take it out. He kind of used both vehicles. Um, to walk in and then he would have his cart there and he could walk around all day with it. Um, on the days when another vehicle wasn't parked next to him, he'd just crawl in the door. He'd crawl from this truck in. He didn't yeah. care how he got into work. He just wanted to work. He wanted to be useful. And I could hardly stand it anymore once again. So I started calling into work and asked if somebody would come out and help him. And they were so willing down. Somebody came out every day and helped him in. One day one of his co-workers came out, opened his door, picked him up, and he came home and told me it was just like a baby. He just picked me up and carried me into work and dropped me off. And that's exactly he did that then from then on. So um, Greg could barely walk anymore. So one day we saw I saw an ad, an ad in the paper for a scooter. It was about two hours away and I did not have time to make that trip, four hour round trip. Right then the phone rang and it was somebody who said, what can I do for you today? I'm free, what can I do? And by evening we had that scooter at our house in our garage. Greg was now a free man to go outside and do what he wanted. He'd get on that scooter and he'd drive around the yard and he just felt like a free man. Um, I would watch for him to come home. The kids would help me, we'd help him up the steps and we didn't, couldn't get the scooter in the house yet. So he'd have a wheelchair there, just a manual wheelchair that he'd push around as a walker and he'd get around the house like that. So here it was already March and we, had, we just had one disappointment after another. Um, one Sunday, one of my saddest days was that spring on a Sunday Greg had been teaching Sunday school for about five years, and now he started fretting on Friday. How am I going to make it up the stairs? Because Rittman has a lot of steps to go up. Had. Um, since his mind was still working and his mouth was still working, quitting would just be one more defeat. That Sunday we got to the top of the steps, and he just looked at me with big tears, and he said, I can't go one step further. As it turned out, his Sunday school said class said if he couldn't come up, then he would then they would come down and they would have Sunday school downstairs, but that didn't happen. The next week we got there and Greg was in a, a push wheelchair by then. Um, the next week they we got there and there was two men at the bottom of the steps waiting to carry him up. They carried him up wheelchair and all. And he taught as long as he could. His voice was getting really soft, so that ended too after a while. Since so many. Um, Since we had so many offers for help, we decided to have a spring cleanup. And one Saturday, about 40 people showed up. up. Young, old, they would do anything. Um, Pick up sticks, they cleaned up our whole yard. It was just just overwhelming to see the outpouring of love. Um, Greg still wanted to feel like he was worth something and he loved mowing, except we had a mower that had a clutch and he couldn't push the clutch in anymore. So somebody loaned us their uh, zero-turn mower, and he was able to use the hand controls. And um, he was very innovative because I couldn't transfer him onto the mower. So he decided if he'd drive his scooter up to the swing set and I'd put the swing underneath him, I'd drive the scooter out, and I'd drive the lawnmower underneath him, he could sit down, I'd pull the seat out, and he could mow for as long as he wanted. So as as April turned into May, there was a lot more changes. Um, Greg was having a hard time driving his truck because it also had a clutch. Uh, One morning he didn't have the strength to hold the clutch in and the truck just lurched forward and luckily it didn't hit anything in the garage. Um, He was actually lifting his legs. He lifted them with his hands. He still had strength in his arms. He lifted them from the gas to the brake and it was pretty dangerous driving. So I just committed him to the Lord every day that he drove out of the driveway, jerking down the driveway with his truck, trying to get out. And I knew that as it had been in the past, he would soon hand it over and he would accept it. So May was the month that the power wheelchair with a reclining back arrived. Um, He could lean back and just take a rest whenever he wanted to. A heavier ramp was also installed in our garage to hold the weight of the chair. But now we needed a vehicle to transport this heavy wheelchair. When that arrived, Greg felt like a king. He was able to drive down the ramp, go to the lift, lift himself up, get in the car, or it was a van, get in the van, transfer himself um, into the driver's seat. And that lasted about two weeks. He could still drive because we had hand controls, but I had to help him transfer, so he was less independent. One more defeat. The kids were troopers helping Greg out. Each evening, I transfer him onto the couch, and um, the kids would help him with his exercises. Leah was a champion in that area. It's always moving legs, hence her physical therapy now. <laughs> and even Bethany, she had a job. She was two years old, and it was her job to lift his feet onto the couch, and she'd cry and let you know if someone else did it. <laughs> so Todd was also a big help with the exercises and a great help. He'd go outside with Greg. Actually, all the kids would go outside with Greg and help him pick up or whatever he needed to do. Um, And Laura, who was nine at the time, she was strong. She was tall. She was strong. And she was my chief transfer. She'd help me lift him, move him. And there were times that I'd have to call her and help me to get him off the bathroom floor. Um, So uh, as May turned to June... Greg was having a difficult time sleeping. He'd wake me several times a night and ask me to turn him, move his legs or whatever he needed. And we were both losing a lot of sleep. He was losing weight, he had lost his appetite and uh, his independence was diminishing daily. His diaphragm was affected and his breathing was really beginning to scare him. And his weight loss was also a concern. We went to our family doctor and he assessed the situation and he immediately ordered a hospital bed that came that night and he got home health. And- Hi. Yes. We also had well, a lift of. her It was in a, mm-hmm. a here
0: in Ohio,
1: healing, and went Greg. from our bathroom to the bathroom. It's about the drive remote. or strive. you had a
0: remote control. When you're in thriving mode or. or- the bathroom How are you? There. Good. Good to see you. Yeah.
1: Has May turned to June? Oh, okay, I'm sorry.
0: Oh we did? Okay, At this yeah. point, Greg yeah. was quite yeah.
1: yeah. and he felt like he was hurt me and the children. He felt wow. worthless. I'll be down At this point, soon. Telling him he was not worthy of salvation. <laughs> Kevin Ryan, the elder in Rockville, knew of Greg's discouragement, and he called him. And I'll never forget that phone call. He reminded Greg that none of us are worthy to enter heaven's gates. He told Greg to concentrate on Christ's redemptive blood and not on Greg's unworthiness or failures. And this really helped him to realize that it was just Satan trying to discourage him. By this time, his breathing capacity had declined from 70% to 30%, and he was fitted with a respirator, which had a nose mask. When he sniffed, it forced air into his lungs. He started out wearing that a couple times a day, and it wasn't very long, and he was wearing it 24 seven. He was still going to work every day, but it was getting a lot harder for him. So another prayer that was answered about in June um, was for a nanny. Went out of the blue, Dawn Stoller Steiner, now um, called me and said, if we needed someone to help out, that she was available. We took her up on her offer, and soon she was a part of our family. Not only did she take care of the children, she was an excellent disciplinarian. Cook, cleaner, and entertainer. She even taught my kids how to wash the floor, but I think they forgot. (laughs) The kids loved her, actually. She was a wonderful asset. So in July, Greg's um, weight loss and lack of appetite was turning into a big problem. And so surgery to place a feeding tube was scheduled and hospice was called in. It was then that it really hit me, that God had other plans than for than for extending Greg's life. So during surgery, the feeding tube um, broke in his stomach and they had to retrieve it. And in doing so, they nicked an artery. So that night, um, I was staying overnight and he started bleeding internally and it was whatever, coming out and So uh, he needed another surgery that evening immediately. So before they took him back to ICU, the doctor asked what heroic measures we wanted in case he would have a cardiac arrest or some other thing would happen. What did we want to do? And even though we had talked about not prolonging his life with life support, it was way too early. We had talked about that at the end of life and here, Greg, he still had a lot of life. He still had quality life. And we were not ready for that. He was not ready to give up life either. So at that point I called, we had talked to Andy Stoller about that. And I called him just to ask him, it was two o'clock in the morning, You know what his thoughts were, what, what we should do. Um, and I also called Greg's family and just told them what was happening. So they took Greg, whisk, whisked him away. And here I was standing in a deserted waiting room four o'clock in the morning. God was my solace. I had nothing else. Nobody else other than Greg's family and Andy and Roberta knew what was going on. So I'm in the waiting room, and an hour later, in walks Andy and Roberta and Greg's family and all his siblings. I was so taken aback. Here I'd woken them in the middle of the night, and they came to support us. Once again, God's spirit was at work. That evening, Earl Beery came, and he prayed with us. God, uh, Greg's faith had been tried and very, very weak. I always remember the strength we felt in that prayer. After he left, Greg shared an experience he had during the prayer. He said he felt like his body was floating and a peace encircled him like never before. We both knew then that all the mistakes that had happened that day, in the last two days, were really not mistakes. They were all in God's perfect plan so that Greg could feel that wonderful feeling of peace. Never again during his illness was Satan able to steal that from him. So working helped take his mind off his physical issues. And um, it was such a blessing that Dave and Ken allowed him to continue working and they created a position for him so he could work on the computer and do some cat drawings instead of actually making the cabinets. By now our days consisted of Greg getting out of bed with a lift, bathing him, getting him dressed, shaving him, brushing his teeth, suctioning him and tube feeding him. This process usually took about one and a half to two hours each morning. And one morning it had taken so long to get out of the house he just sat in the van and wept. He said, I'm just like a baby. I can't do anything for myself. You have to bathe me, pull me, feed me and everything else. He had just been stripped of all his dignity. So I would bring him to work and exchange cars with one of the men at Swiss, and then they would bring him home. And Vern Lance fed him at lunch so I didn't have to come back in. And then the man, whoever I switched cars with, they'd bring him back home. They were so accommodating and kind. They all wanted to do whatever they could to help. And we know that God's almighty hand was there by placing him there at that work several years prior. So school was ready to start. We're in August now and Dawn had to go back to Toledo. So we hired Marsha Ruffiner and Debbie Christian to get the kids on the bus and to take care of Todd and Bethany, do any other cleaning or whatever needed to be done. All three of these ladies were a huge answer to prayer. At this time, Greg was becoming very anxious because it was getting harder to breathe. He couldn't be left alone and I could feel him pulling away from the kids and that made me really sad. He also worried not about dying because he knew what was waiting for him, but he was worried. He thought he was either gonna choke or suffocate. So I conveyed these fears to the ALS nurse. And she said that most ALS patients just sleep away. The carbon dioxide levels exceed the oxygen levels because they can't blow it off. Um, And they would just get sleepier and sleepier. And with this news, he was so relieved. And that was the case. He just, he kept getting sleepier and sleepier. So Labor Day came and Greg was sleeping more, falling asleep at the drop of a dime. And I felt it was time to tell the kids that he was getting close to death. So after many tears and questions, that night their prayer changed from Heal Daddy to help us accept it. Since I was very sleep deprived, uh, Debbie Christian, along with some other nurses, volunteered to stay overnight so that I could get some sleep. I slept in the bed right next to the hospital bed and they'd come in and out all night doing whatever he needed and I, I just slept. I was so tired and exhausted. So the night before we died, the night before he died, um, I laid within bed that night and we were talking about heaven and I asked him, do you feel at peace with God right now? And his yes response was so confident. It left no room for me to doubt that he was ready to go. In the morning, I noticed a color change and knew something was wrong. The visiting nurse arrived and encouraged us to tell him it was okay to go, that God would take care of him, take care of us. She tried to get a pulse, but there was none, so I removed the mask. And the look on his face was so peaceful, it was beautiful. His battle was over, and his victory was won. Looking back on those last nine months of Greg's life, it gives me great comfort seeing God working in his heart and the heart of others around us. We were in survival mode that whole time trying to adjust to daily changes, and they were daily. <clears> there <throat> was one week during the whole nine months that I did not see a change. The prayers that we answered, that were answered both big and small, were great faith builders. During his illness, we got to witness a beautiful picture of God's love, grace, mercy, and transformation. Throughout his life, Greg had struggled with his faith and his confidence. And my prayer at the beginning was that before he died, I could see that he was at total peace. That prayer was answered. So we all have a story, and God is there when we need him, with the exact amount of grace and strength and courage that we need. No more, no less. God reassured us many times over through Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not afraid, for I am thy God. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the
0: right hand of my righteousness. Okay, I'm going to add one more note to this. Because I remember when Greg was diagnosed, his one fear was that he would be sick and people would forget about him. And I, I, I can't go back and listen to the sermons or whatever to hear it. But I think I remember that he was praying for every Sunday in church. He was very visible because he was in a wheelchair. and He was in the middle of the room and I can still see him sit there in the middle of the, the aisle. And so he was very visible to the ministers. But that prayer was answered, too. So it really was amazing. So how did you manage it? Um, We tried to be very open and not
1: hide the truth from our kids. That was one thing that we wanted to do. We also tried to keep each day as normal as possible. We wanted the kids to be home with us. We didn't want them running here and there every day and just getting spoiled. There was so much happening that I couldn't keep up with the daily changes, but there was no other way to manage it than one day at a time. That was our motto. After Greg died, it was like, now what? I had four kids to raise and I had to go on. I was forced to get up and care for them. It was not just about me. One evening, I was very lonely and crying on the couch. And Leah came over to me and said, why are you crying? And I replied, I'm sad. And she tried to comfort me with, by saying, but mommy, you have us. <laughs> exactly. That wasn't why I was crying, but it was heavy. The, the uh, heaviness of being the parent 24 seven was overwhelming at times. One of the hardest things after he died was decision making. I was a decision maker. And at that point, I couldn't make a decision. I couldn't decide what to wear. I couldn't decide what I should let my kids do. Um, how to discipline and that that did get better with time though it just was in the very beginning. it was really foreign to me. God was my refuge and strength. I could really feel his presence and feel like he could help me through this time. I really don't remember a lot about that period after he died until I remarried. It was just I think I was just in survival mode and he took me through one day at a time.
0: Okay so was there a point when you felt like you started thriving and if so what helped you to get to that place? I feel like I was still in survival mode um,
1: right up until and after Ken and I got married. I had gotten into a routine with my kids but it was still one day at a time Um, but now I got married and I was trying to juggle a new marriage figuring figuring out how to involve Ken and letting him take over as head of the household without my kids being resentful. He didn't want to come in with an iron fist and just start disciplining. And so he left me do the disciplining and then he's just supported me. Um, He was a perfectionist and I was not. And he was used to things being in their place and in our family. What belonged to one person was free for all to use and usually didn't end up in the same place. (laughs) I feel like I started thriving again um, when Ken adopted the kids, and they
0: began to respect them as their dad. They would call him dad, respected him. I think I started thriving again. So, just as a question, how how long was it till you got married? Um, Eighteen months. Okay, and then how long till you they were adopted? But I, I, I'm thinking that it
1: was the next year. Yeah, they were afraid if I died, you know. What can happen? We can want them, you know, but they eventually, he
0: earned their respect. Yeah, okay. Um, What are some ways that others helped during that season of life? And maybe what are some things that well-meaning people did that didn't help, okay? Um, I
1: can't begin to tell you how much people helped. (laughs) Prayer was the most important. We were carried by prayer, for sure. Um, people were so helpful bringing meals, helping with the children, helping around the house, whatever our needs were, the help was there. They also were pretty creative, some of them. One person um, canned something for my kids' lunches, and it was a canning jar filled with $101 bills. So the kids for their lunches would take a dollar bill out, buy their lunch at school. And we used that dollar bill, that um, jar, for several years. Um so ladies, when you're hesitant to help because you don't feel like you can do good enough, don't let that stop you. Even the little things were a blessing to us. A loaf of bread, a card, something for the kids, a kind word. One day I needed honey to make some bread for Greg, but couldn't get to the store. And that night he came home and there was a jar of honey. I am told soul there was a jar of honey in his car from somebody who made honey for these. Um, and as for people doing things that didn't help, I can't think of anything. I really can't.
0: So so why is it important to look outside of our own survival while just trying to survive? Everyone has something in their life, whether it
1: looks big or small to the outside world. It's big to each of us. Our lives were so transparent, like you had said, for everybody to see. They could see Craig going downhill every week. People would tell me they could never be as strong as we were, but God gives you the exact amount of grace that we need. Whether our issue is big or small, to each of us going through it, it's big. It was very important for my mental health to look at my situation and realize that I was so blessed. To have the Lord as my strength. I don't know how people do it without the Lord. Mm-hmm. I had a piece in my heart that Greg was in heaven. And I'd look at others who were struggling with relationships and could tell myself that there were things way worse than death and losing a spouse. And it helped me take my eyes off myself. When I was having a stressful day or a pity party for myself, I could think of people who were way worse than I could pray for them. It was therapeutic praying for other people.
0: So have you found yourself in survival mode since your children have grown? And if so, what did that look like? And how is it different? And how did you manage it differently? A lot of questions there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yes, I found
1: myself in another long-term survival mode again two years ago. Most of you know our situation um, with my son Todd and his wife Lizzie. Um, Lizzie was very close to her due date when she had severe pain in her abdomen. She was admitted into the hospital and induced. She was in there all day and about five she went to the restroom and all of a sudden she felt really lightheaded. And she yelled out and they brought her and they they checked for the baby's heartbeat and they couldn't get a baby's heartbeat. So they rushed her in um, for a C-section and they got the baby out and welcomed Juniper Joy Gosser. But the delivery team noticed an abnormal amount of blood flowing in her, um, in her abdomen, and um, flowing from her incision actually. And they determined that her liver had ruptured and blood had filled her abdomen. So she was diagnosed with a condition called Helps Syndrome. Unfortunately, they weren't able to com- uh, completely repair the liver. So they packed it with pressure packs to allow her to stabilize and left the incision open and went back into surgery. Uh, she went back into surgery Sunday. Thankfully, this surgery went as planned, and by Monday, she was able she was able to be extubated. Um, Monday night, she um, started having troubles trouble breathing. Um, actually, let me go back a little bit. So after the surgery, actually, she was extubated on Monday. The doctor explained that this help syndrome with a ruptured liver was not a very common occurrence. And it would be a lengthy uh, recovery, weeks, not days. She'd have to stay in the hospital. So we started to discuss hiring someone to come and live with them and take care of the baby for a few weeks. We never anticipated the journey and trial God would have in store for us. So on Tuesday, she had a trouble with trouble breathing, and she had to be re-intubated. And after many tests, it was determined that she had a poorly functioning mitral valve that would have to be replaced. They started to question her family history. That evening, a balloon pump surgery took place and they determined that Lizzie's heart problem was worse than they imagined. She had a tear in her heart and blood was backing up into her lungs. She was diagnosed with acute respiratory distress. She couldn't wait any longer for a mitral valve replacement, and was flown by helicopter that same night to Cleveland Clinic. I'll never, bo- I'll never forget that night. Todd and I drove up to Cleveland Clinic, and by the time we got there, they had her almost ready to go into surgery. Todd went in with her to pray, and was so emotional he could hardly do it. The nurse. That was attending her this little sweet nurse asked if she could pray and she had the most beautiful prayer call me it was just a beautiful time. So we waited in the waiting room. And the next morning. Um, after the surgery, the doctor came out. Um, and he said the surgery went well, but when they went to restart her heart, it just fell apart in his hands. So he started questioning um, what her her history. He thought maybe she had a connective tissue issue um, because her heart was falling apart. So because her heart wouldn't function properly, she was placed on the ECMO machine, which would do the work for her heart and her lungs temporarily. The next day, they realized if they restarted Lizzie's heart it wouldn't function well. He felt like she should be placed on the heart transplant list with hopes that she would quickly receive a heart since her condition was so critical. Some of her family arrived, and they were able to visit her. But with COVID, the visiting hours became more limited each day. Todd was in constant contact with the nurses and doctors, and her case became very personal to the whole staff there. The staff would pretend that he needed to come in and sign something and have a, or have a meeting so that he could come in different times than um, visiting hours. So Todd, uh, Joy, and Lizzie's, uh, Joy is Lizzie's mom, and I were living in a hotel a few miles from the hospital. But when Lizzie was placed on the transplant list, we were able to move to a two bedroom apartment at the um, transplant house where the families can stay. Two days later, Lizzie was losing a lot of blood and needed to have another surgery to help stop the bleeding. This blood loss and the surgery caused her to be taken off the transplant list and moved to an inactive status for receiving the heart. Because her condition was not uh, stable enough, it was just a whirlwind of changes. The next few days were like a roller coaster. With Lizzie having surgeries to clean out blood clots, surgeries to stop the bleeding, on the transplant list, off the transplant list. Now her lungs were failing because of the clots, so she was placed on the heart and lung transplant list. Next, her kidneys were starting to fail, and so now she was off the list. We were struggling with the bad news several times a day. Meanwhile, we had a baby to take care of. Leah, Joel, and Bethany picked up Juniper at Akron General and brought her home for a few days. When we moved to the transplant house, they brought her up to stay with Todd, Joy and I, and we took our turns with the night watch and were pretty sleep deprived. During this time, we were discussing what kind of help Lizzie would need now to help with Juniper and her very long recovery. So the two weeks after Juniper was born was like a blur. On March 29th, Lizzie developed a bleed in her colon and her other organs were deteriorating. They needed to stop the bleeding in her colon. But if they did surgery, she'd bleed out during surgery and would not make it through. If they didn't stop the bleeding, she would bleed to death and die a very slow and painful death. At this point, it was the ECMO machine that was keeping her alive. And after much anguish, consultation with the physicians and prayer, the decision was made to do the humane thing and take the machine off. We were all allowed in the room we talked, sang, prayed, and then she went to be with Jesus. The emotional roller coaster of hope, sorrow, grief, trying to figure it all out was overwhelming. Also with the COVID quarantine, there was another element. We knew people all over were praying, but not being able to talk to or cry with or hug our friends and family in person, was devastating. Excuse me. And we anticipated that this would continue at the funeral since COVID was just beginning and nobody knew what it was all about. However, I've learned that there are unexpected blessings during grieving and survival. As we experienced the calling hours behind the six foot barrier, our emotions were shocked. We felt very alone. But the funeral was the most beautiful and uplifting funeral I've ever been to. When we left the church, we made our way, we made our first turn to the cemetery. We noticed there was people standing outside their homes and they had yellow balloons. The closer we got to the cemetery, the street was lined with cars and people supporting us. We were weeping and just overwhelmed by the support we felt and the love we felt. Once again, God was there to lift us up when we were down and work through our friends and relatives and church family community. So now we're back to the drawing board, how to care for Juniper. Lizzie's family stayed for a while to help. And then Laura, Leah, Bethany, and myself made out a schedule as to which days we could take her, watch her and which nights we were available to spend the night at Todd's. Leah took over the care schedule and Juniper schedule how much formula? How many feedings per day? Sleep sack? Arms in? Arms out? Etc. <laughs> our lives soon were consumed with Juniper's care, and helping Todd with daily daily chores, and worrying about his well-being and their future, along with grieving and trying to make some sense out of everything that had happened, and turned our world upside down. About a month later, it was determined that Lizzie had had a genetic connective tissue disorder that affects the blood vessels and internal organs called vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. She was very healthy, so it went undetected until her pregnancy. It causes a connective tissue to become very weak and tear, which is why her liver tore and the other organs failed. She had had a brother that had died at age 15. So after her diagnosis, her whole family was tested and other pieces of the puzzle were solved. Todd had Juniper tested because there was a 50% chance that she could inherit it. And praise God, the results were negative. The next few months we continued in survival mode, not the adrenaline pumping survival mode of the first few weeks, but just busyness, grieving and concerns about the future. Todd became a caring dad, but his heart was grieved But after about five months of overnight stays at Todd's, he decided he was ready to take on the responsibility of a full-time dad. Our lives were turned upside down for six months, but there are many things to praise God for. Since we had all been all together during COVID, our family quarantine was not an issue. So we did not feel the immediate family um, disconnect as others did at that time. COVID slowed down our lives to the point that our focus could be on the situation at hand. God's been with us every step of the way. And now we can rejoice that he has led Todd to marry again. And we are so blessed to have this family. We can see the joy in Todd's eyes and she has become an awesome mom to Juniper and wonderful daughter-in-law. We've had much, much sorrow, but we've also had much joy. Now, back to your other question. I don't feel like we managed this situation any different than we handled the trial of Greg's illness and death one day at a time. We couldn't do it any other way. Trusting that God is in control and he does not make mistakes, his promises are true, and we can go on from surviving this hectic life to
0: thriving in his grace and love. <clears throat> So what advice do you have for someone who feels like they are just surviving? Well, my mom was always full of advice.
1: And she used to tell me, Sue so Ellen, there are seasons of life for all of us. When you have those Sunday mornings where everything goes wrong, you're yelling at the kids right up time till you get to the <laughs> church door. Maybe none of you have experienced that. Uh, get into the service and don't hear a word and wondering, why did I even come today? She would say, God sees your heart, and even though you didn't hear the sermon, you brought your kids. There is a blessing in this. This is just a season. God gives each of us the grace we need to face each day, no matter what the day brings. Whether sorrow, dizziness, sickness, heartbreak, loneliness, whatever it may be, he sees our needs and he understands, and he will give you the grace, strength, and courage to go on when you think you can't. So my advice of, um, for those of you who feel like you're just surviving is just keep on keeping on one day at a time. Soon you will be thriving again.
0: This is just a season. Yes, very good. I guess I have one more story to well, tell about Greg. <laughs> well, it, it, I'm not having, but I've heard it. And maybe some of you have ever heard it too. But talking about his... Um, teaching Sunday school. So he taught with John Klopsel and then uh, he was getting close to death. And so the kids were all whatever. And so John told him, he was like, now Greg, when you get up to heaven, we want to know that you're there. And so he said, why don't you just open that window in our Sunday school room that never, ever. It was stuck. It was stuck and never, they couldn't get it open. And so, I don't know if it was a Sunday or two after he died, they got into Sunday school, they came up to that room, and that window was open. So, (laughs) God
1: hears us always and always, so we can be sure of that.